Aloha, story seekers, and welcome to the Folksy Podcast. Today's tale hails from Hawaiian mythology, from the book Legends of Gods and Ghosts. The author, one Reverend William Drake Westervelt, was considered amongst the foremost authorities on Hawaiian island lore in the English language. He penned several collections of Hawaiian myths, legends, and folk tales after settling on the islands in 1899. Let's get to the story itself, titled The Ghost of Wahaula Temple. While a bit wordy due to the inclusion of an early expository piece, the story promises to be a fascinating read. Let's begin. Hawaiian temples were never works of art. Broken lava was always near the site upon which a temple was to be built. Rough, unhewn stones were easily piled into massive walls, hidden terraces for altar and floors. Water-worn pebbles were carried from the nearest beach and strewn over the uneven floor making a comparatively smooth place over which the naked feet of the temple dwellers passed without the injuries which would otherwise frequently come from the sharp-edged lava. Rude grass huts built on terraces were the abodes of the priests and of the high chiefs who sometimes visited the places of sacrifice. Elevated, flat-topped piles of stones were usually built at one end of the temple for the chief idols and the sacrifices placed before them. Simplicity of detail marked every step of temple erection. No hewn pillars or arched gateways of even the most primitive designs can be found in any of the temples, whether of decent date or belonging to remote antiquity. There was no attempt at ornamentation, even in the images of the great gods which they worshipped. Crude, uncouth, and hideous were the images before which they offered sacrifice and prayer. In themselves, the heiaus, or temples, of the Hawaiian islands have but little attraction. Today, they seem more like massive walled cattle pens than places which had ever been used for sacred worship. On the southeast coast of the island of Hawaii near Kalapana is one of the largest, oldest, and best preserved heiaus or temples in the Hawaiian islands. It is no exception to the architectural rule for Hawaiian temples and is worthy the name of temple only as it is intimately associated with the religious customs of the Hawaiians. Its walls are several feet thick, and in places 10 to 12 feet high. It is divided into rooms or pens, in one of which still lies the huge sacrificial stone upon which victims, sometimes human, were slain before the bodies were placed as offerings in front of the hideous idols leaning against the stone walls. 
This heiau now bears the name Wahaula or Red Mouth. In ancient times, it was known as Ahaula or the Red Assembly, possibly denoting that at times the priests and their attendants wore red mantles in their processions or during some part of their sacred ceremonies. This temple is said to be the oldest of all the Hawaiian heiaus, except possibly the heiau at Kohala on the northern coast of the same island. These two heiaus date back in tradition to the time of Pau, the priest from Upolu, Samoa, who was said to have built them. He was the, he was the traditional father of the priestly line which ran parallel to the royal genealogy of the Kamehamehas during several centuries until the last high priest, Heva Heva, became a follower of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. This was the last heiau destroyed when the ancient taboos and ceremonial rites were overthrown by the chiefs just before the coming of Christian missionaries. At that time, the grass houses of the priests were burned, and in these raging flames were thrown the wooden idols back of the altars and the bamboo huts of the soothsayers and the images on the walls, with everything combustible which belonged to the ancient order of worship. Only the walls and rough stone floors were left in the temple. In the outer temple court was the most noted sacred grave in all the islands. Earth had been carried from the mountain sides inland. Leaves and decaying trees added to the permanency of the soil. Here, in the most unlikely place, it was said that all the varieties of trees then found in the islands had been gathered by the priests, the descendants of Pau. This day, the grave stands by the temple walls, an object of superstitious awe among the natives. Many of the varieties of trees they planted have died, leaving only those which were more hardy and needed less priestly care than they received a hundred years or more ago. The temple is built near the coast on the rough, sharp, broken rocks of an ancient lava flow. In many places in and around the temple, the lava was dug out, making holes three or four feet across and from one to two feet deep. These, in the days of the priesthood, had been filled with earth brought in baskets from the mountains. Here they raised sweet potatoes and taro and bananas. Now the rains have washed the soil away and to the unknowing there is no sign of previous agriculture. Near these depressions and along the paths leading to Wahaula, other holes were sometimes cut out of the hard, fine-grained lava. When heavy rains fell, little grooves carried the drops of water to these holes and they became small cisterns. Here, the thirsty messengers running from one priestly clan to another, or the traveler or worshippers coming to the sacred place, could almost always find a few drops of water to quench their thirst. 
Usually, these water holes were covered with a large flat stone under which the water ran into the cistern. This day, these small water places border the path across the Pahoho lava field, which lies adjacent to the broken Aa lava upon which the Wahaulaheau is built. Many of them are still covered as in the days of the long ago. It is not strange that legends have developed through the mists of the centuries around this rude old temple. Vahaula was a taboo temple of the very highest rank. The native chants said, No keya heyau oya ke kapu e naina, or concerning this heyau is the burning taboo. Enaina means burning with a red-hot rage. The heyau was so thoroughly taboo or kapu that the smokes of its fires falling upon any of the people or even upon any one of the chiefs was sufficient cause for punishment by death, with the body as a sacrifice to the gods of the temple. These gods were of the very highest rank among the Hawaiian deities. Certain days were taboo to Lono, or Rongo as he was known in other island groups of the Pacific Ocean. Other days belonged to Ku, who was also worshipped from New Zealand to Tahiti. At other times, Kane, also known as Tain by many Polynesians, was held supreme. Then again, Kanaloa or Tanaroa, sometimes worshipped in Samoa and other island groups as the greatest of all their gods, had his days, especially set apart for sacrifice and chant. The Mu, or body catcher of this Heiau, with his assistance, seems to have been continually on the watch for human victims. And woe to the unfortunate man who carelessly or ignorantly walked where the winds blew the smoke from the temple fires. No one dared rescue him from the hands of the hunter of men. For then, the wrath of all the gods was sure to follow him all the days of his life. The people of the districts around Wahaula always watched the course of the winds with great anxiety, carefully noting the direction taken by the smoke. The smoke was the shadow cast by the deity worshipped and was far more sacred than the shadow of the highest chief or king in all the islands. It was always sufficient cause for death if a common man allowed his shadow to fall upon any taboo chief, in essence, a chief of especially high rank. But in this burning taboo, if any man permitted the smoke or shadow of the god who was being worshipped in this temple to come near him or overshadow him, it was a mark of such great disrespect that the god was supposed to be Enaina, red-hot with rage. Many years ago, a young chief, whom we shall know by the name Kahele, determined to take an especial journey around the island, visiting all the noted and sacred places and becoming acquainted with the Ali, or chiefs, of the other districts. 
he passed from place to place, taking part with the chiefs who entertained him sometimes in the use of the papahe or surfboard, riding the white-capped surf as it majestically swept shoreward, sometimes spending night after night in the innumerable gambling contests which passed under the name Pili Waiwai, and sometimes riding the narrow sled or holua with which Hawaiian chiefs raced down the steep grassed lanes. Then again, with a deep sense of the solemnity of sacred things, he visited the most noted of the heiaus and made contributions to the offerings before the gods. Thus the days passed, and the slow journey was very pleasant to Kahele. In time, he came to Puna, the district in which was located the temple Vahaula. But alas, in the midst of the many stories of the past which he had heard and the many pleasures he had enjoyed while on his journey, Kahele forgot the peculiar power of the taboo of the smoke of Vahaula. The fierce winds of the south were blowing and changing from point to point. The young man saw the sacred grove in the edge of which the temple walls could be discerned. Thin wreaths of smoke were tossed here and there from the temple fires. Kahili hastened toward the temple. The Mu was watching his coming and joyfully marking him as a victim. The altars of the gods were desolate, and if but a particle of smoke fell upon the young man, no one could keep him from the hands of the executioner. The perilous moment came. The warm breath of one of the fires touched the young chief's cheek. Soon a blow from the club of the moon laid him senseless on the rough stones of the outer court of the temple. The smoke of the wrath of the gods had fallen upon him, and it was well that he should lie as a sacrifice upon their altars. Soon the body with the life still in it was thrown across the sacrificial stone. Sharp knives made from the strong wood of the bamboo let his life blood flow down the depressions across the face of the stone. Quickly the body was dismembered and offered as a sacrifice. For some reason the priests, after the flesh had decayed, set apart the bones for some special purpose. The legends imply that the bones were to be treated dishonorably. It may have been that the bones were folded together in the shape known as unihipili, or grasshopper bones. In essence, folded and laid away for purposes of incantation. Such bundles of bones were put through a process of prayers and charms, until at last it was thought a new spirit was created which dwelt in that bundle and gave the possessor a peculiar power in deeds of witchcraft. The spirit of Kahele rebelled against this disposition of all that remained of his body. He wanted to be back in his native district, that he might enjoy the pleasures of the underworld with his chosen companions. Restlessly, the spirit haunted the dark corners of the temple, watching the priests as they handled his bones. Helplessly, the ghost fumed and fretted against its condition. 
It did all that a disembodied spirit could do to attract the attention of the priests. At last, the spirit fled by night from this place of torment to the home which he had so joyfully left a short time before. Kahele's father was the high chief of Kau. Surrounded by retainers, he passed his days in quietness and peace, waiting for the return of his son. One night, a strange came to him. He heard a voice calling from the mysterious confines of the spirit land. As he listened, a spirit form stood by his side. The ghost was that of his son Kahele. By means of the dream, the ghost revealed to the father that he had been put to death and that his bones were in great danger of dishonorable treatment. The father awoke benumbed with fear, realizing that his son was calling upon him for immediate help. At once he left his people and journeyed from place to place secretly, not knowing where or when Kahele had died, but fully sure that the spirit of his vision was that of his son. It was not difficult to trace the young man. He had left his footprints openly all along the way. There was nothing of shame or dishonor, and the father's heart filled with pride as he hastened on. From time to time, however, he heard the spirit voice calling him to save the bones of the body of his dead son. At last, he felt that his journey was nearly done. He had followed the footsteps of Kahele almost entirely around the island and had come to Pune the last district before his own land of Kau would welcome his return. The spirit voice could be heard now in the dream which nightly came to him. Warnings and directions were frequently given. Then the chief came to the lava fields of Wahaula and lay down to rest. The ghost came to him again in a dream telling him that great personal danger was near at hand. The chief was a very strong man, excelling in athletic and brave deeds. But in obedience to the spirit voice, he rose early in the morning, secured oily nuts from a kukui tree, beat out the oil and anointed himself thoroughly. Walking along carelessly as if to avoid suspicion, he drew near to the lands of the temple Vahaula. Soon, a man came out to meet him. This man was an Olohe, a beardless man belonging to a lawless robber clan which infested the district, possibly assisting the manhunters of the temple in securing victims for the temple altars. This Olohe was very strong and self-confident and thought he would have but little difficulty in destroying this stranger who journeyed alone through Pune. Almost all day the battle raged between the two men. Back and forth they forced each other over the lava beds. The chief's well-oiled body was very difficult for the Olohe to grasp. Bruised and bleeding from repeated falls on the rough lava, both of the combatants were becoming very weary. 
Then the chief made a new attack, forcing the Olohe into a narrow place from which there was no escape and at last seizing him, breaking his bones and then killing him. As the shadows of night rested over the temple and its sacred grave, the chief crept closer to the dreaded taboo walls. Concealing himself, he waited for the ghost to reveal to him the best plan for action. The ghost came, but was compelled to bid the father wait patiently for a fit time when the secret place in which the bones were hidden could be safely visited. For several days and nights, the chief hid himself near the temple. He secretly uttered the prayers and incantations needed to secure the protection of his family gods. One night, the darkness was very great. Priests and watchmen of the temple felt sure that no one would attempt to enter the sacred precincts. Deep sleep rested upon all the temple dwellers. Then the ghost of Kahele hastened to the place where the father was sleeping and aroused him for the dangerous task before him. As the father arose, he saw this ghost outlined in the darkness, beckoning him to follow. Step by step, he felt his way cautiously over the rough path and along the temple walls until he saw the ghost standing near a great rock pointing at a part of the wall. The father seized a stone which seemed to be the one most directly in the line of the ghost's pointing. To his surprise, it very easily was removed from the wall. Back of it was a hollow place in which lay a bundle of folded bones. The ghost urged the chief to take these bones and depart quickly. The father obeyed and followed the spirit guide until safely away from the temple of the burning wrath of the gods. He carried the bones to Kao and placed them in his own secret family burial cave. The ghost of Vahaula went down to the spirit world in great joy. Death had come. The life of the young chief had been taken for temple service, and yet there had at last been nothing dishonorable connected with the destruction of the body and the passing away of the spirit. And so ends another tale. Hawaiian mythology is actually one of the relatively modern ones around. The islands themselves were first inhabited around 500 AD by the early Tahitians and Pacific Islanders, which is basically Polynesia and this group of islands uh, in the Pacific. <laughs> the religion and surrounding mythos itself, you know, developed subsequently around 600 to 800 AD from an amalgamation of all the different influences. The religion itself is polytheistic, which means they have a belief in multiple deities, and animistic, which means that they believe that everything has a spirit, a rock, a tree, everything. 
truthfully, a lot less violent than the earlier Abrahamic religions, to be quite honest with you. Musical credits, as usual these days, go to Ridderman for his beat letting go. I wish to one day be half as good as this person was two years ago. <laughs> And that's where we conclude for this week's Folksy. Next up is another shot at Japanese mythology, courtesy of a different author this time. This is your host, Iser, signing off.